0: Welcome to the FDD events podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. It's Monday, January 29th. My name is Elaine Dazenski. I'm the senior director and head of the Center on Economic and Financial Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. We're really pleased to have you all here. Some are in person, some are tuning in live for today's two-part panel discussion entitled Fortifying the Crypto Future, U.S. National and Economic Security in the Virtual Realm. The emergence of decentralized finance and digital assets such as stable coins, cryptocurrencies, and central bank digital currencies are market disruptors. Innovations that have the potential to fundamentally change the financial system and potentially for the benefit of consumers, markets, and broader financial inclusion. But these technologies also pose risks. New avenues have emerged for illicit financiers, sanctions evasion, financial fraud, and avoiding traditional market controls. U.S. lawmakers are actively wrestling with the challenge of embracing financial innovation while protecting national and economic security. And that's what today's conversation is all about. We are delighted to welcome Representative French Hill of Arkansas's second district and Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut's 4th District along with Juan Zarate, who will moderate the first panel on how Congress should approach this balance between innovation and national security. Our second panel will focus on industry perspectives with uh, three of our industry colleagues, Dante Desparte, uh, Chief Strategy Officer and Head of uh, Global Policy at Circle, Sujit Rahman, General Counsel at TRM Labs, and Amit Sharma, CEO of Inclusive and a board advisor to the CEFP at FTD. And I look forward to moderating that conversation. Representative Hill serves as the vice chairman of the House Financial Services Committee and oversees all areas related to digital assets and financial technology. He's also a member of the House Permanent Select Committee on in Intelligence and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Before his congressional service, Congressman Hill was the founder, chairman, and CEO of Delta Trust and Banking Corporation. Representative Jim Himes is the ranking member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and also serves on the House Financial Services Committee. Before his service in Congress, he ran the New York uh, City branch of the Enterprise Community Partners, a nonprofit dedicated to addressing the unique challenges of urban poverty. Congressman Himes uh, started his professional career at Goldman Sachs. And finally, I'm delighted to introduce my friend and colleague, Juan Zarate, who serves as chairman and co-founder of the Center on Economic and Financial Power and is the global co-managing partner at K2 Integrity. From 2004 to 2008, Juan served as the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism. Before we dive into our featured discussion, just a few quick words about FDD. For over 20 years, we have operated as an independent, nonpartisan research institute focused exclusively on national security and foreign policy. As a point of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding. The Center on Economic and Financial Power was launched in 2014, formalizing our work in countering terror finance and the institution's deep expertise in sanctions and economic warfare. Since then, our work has expanded to a broad reach of research and policy to work uh, towards strengthening America's economic and financial power. For more on our work, please uh, visit our website, fdd.org, and follow us on x at FDD. Thanks uh, so much, and I turn it over to Juan.
2: Elaine, thank you for that wonderful and warm introduction. Uh, I wanna thank you for your leadership of the Center on Economic and Financial Power. You continue to innovate and to lead us uh, with great grace, dignity, and innovation, so thank you. I'm looking forward to the second panel Congressman, really honored to have you here. I want to welcome you all. Thank you for joining. Those who are joining online, welcome as well. Let's jump right in. Um, Congressman, you've both sponsored legislation to regulate the crypto industry um, and to balance between the risks and the opportunities that the industry represents. Can you speak to both the legislation and your motivation uh, for being involved uh, on this issue? Congressman.
3: Well, um, thanks. Probably starting out of order since I'm in the minority and French is in the majority. Uh, uh, but I we'll give I, him the last one. I say that because um, it was actually, it was a pretty, both the stablecoin bill and the market structure bill were, were pretty remarkable in as much as uh, the chairman, Patrick McHenry, and. French Hill, who uh, who uh, I think uh, the chairman deputized to do a lot of the uh, the day to day work on this, uh, we're we're dead set on making this as bipartisan as possible. So I think, and I've never had this experience before, I think pretty much <laughs> the list of items that I had throughout the course of the legislative uh, sausage making, they said yes, 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 um, and so we really did produce a, what I think was a strong bipartisan. Uh, product. It may be a little less reflected in the votes than in the sentiment behind mm-hmm. it. I, I really do believe the ranking member was stretching to get to yes. And there were a bunch of reasons why I think in the end she couldn't. But anyway, so I, I um, let, let me answer your direct question very quick quickly. Um, t- to me, I was a technology banker in 98, 99. And to me, this feels a lot uh, like the way we thought about the internet in '98 and '99, we didn't know quite what was going to uh, what it was going to do. We suspected there was some real value and some innovation there. There were some terrible ideas. I was at Goldman when Hank Paulson single-handedly put a billion dollars into Webvan because they'll <laughs> deliver groceries right to your house. Um, and uh, <laughs> He's uh,
2: ahead of his time, maybe yeah. as
3: well. <laughs> That was a painful billion-dollar loss. But anyway, um, it feels to me like that's this moment. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm also skeptical about some of the promised applications, and we can get into that if you like. But the point is, um, both from a prosperity and an economic and a national security standpoint, you don't want to be behind on innovation. And it feels to me like the hard part is not putting in place a better regulatory regime. I don't think either one of us thought we were putting in place the perfect regulatory yeah. regime, but it's not hard to do it better than the one we've got with all of the uncertainty and everything else, and uh, so that was my story, really. I just thought, nah, I don't know whether I should be skeptical about this or excited about this, but we shouldn't be way behind on innovation, and if we don't make some progress, we will be.
4: Yeah, Congressman Bill. I think there, there's not an effective fit-for-purpose design here, mm-hmm. and you have, uh, just like the internet in 1996 was a, uh, a new technology that people didn't know how it would turn out, Uh, But Congress made a proactive decision to not regulate the technology, but instead regulate the use of the technology and let it run in the background effectively. And we've seen all the uh, economic benefits of the internet. So if you think about Web3 or blockchain as a technology, and people want to innovate, they want to invest, they want to offer use cases and test ideas out in the marketplace to see if uh, uh, people are going to like them or not. It is a, the internet by definition now 30 years later is a fully uh, multilateral, multidimensional international entity, not bound per se by national boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so the law has to create that environment in my judgment, and I agree with everything that Jim said, that we need a fit for purpose regulatory environment. It lets innovators and investors know what they might be able to do and not do in the blockchain space when they're raising capital for an idea what is a commodity, what is not a commodity, what's a security. So contrary to some of the opponents in this arena, we are directing the CFTC, the SEC, and the bank regulators what to do here in order to facilitate that innovation in a safe and sound way, lay out the rules of the road. And to Jim's point, let people bring their use case forward. But to, to prohibit them from testing the use case or telling them somehow they're violating a law for trying to innovate, seems to me the, the wrong thing for the US. And finally, we wanna preserve US competitiveness. As I say, this is a very international, multidimensional technology, and it's not limited to a national boundary. Some may use it for ill and some may use it for good, but I think we need to have that oversight And with that oversight, we have much better chances of protecting investors and preventing fraud or malfeasance.
2: It's a great summary. Let me ask you both to kind of weigh, weigh in on the mood in Congress, right? Because there's been ways of either acceptance or adoption or skepticism with respect to, whether it's cryptocurrency, stable coins, or even tokenization. What's the mood in Congress, especially coming off of a year in 2023 with so much scandal, the FTX scandal, the Binance Enforcement Action. um, It was sort of the the heyday for the skeptics to say, I told you so. Uh, What's the mood in Congress for any prospects for legislation in 2024?
4: Well, I think I've argued uh, persuasively either due to the failures of some stable coins to demonstrate that they're stable uh, and people not really have the transparency they deserve in that marketplace, or the failures at FTX, those just simply argue the case that we need this regulatory framework. Uh, our, the chairman of the SEC comes to to the Congress and early on was saying, I need no legal changes. I have all the tools we need. We just need the private sector to, quote, come in and register. Well, clearly that's fallen on... Uh, deaf ears and isn't turned out to be the case. And in fact, the federal courts have determined that's true as well. And we have uh, the chairman at the CFTC saying the opposite thing, uh, Chairman Benham. So I think we've reconciled that and come to a good place. And I would argue these uh, either lack of SEC oversight or too much SEC oversight or the failure and fraud of a criminal, like in the case of FTX, those speak to why we need the law not argue against it, Congressman Hines. Yeah, I th- I I think it's
3: pretty tough. I mean, um, and, and it's probably more concentrated on my side of the aisle. In as much as on you know further on the right, there's natural libertarian genetics, which maybe don't exist uh, in the Democratic Party. So it's concentrated, I think, probably on my side of the aisle. But but. Um, you know, I've really been trying to make the case to the industry that, um, that a much better job must be done on explaining to members, very few of whom are going to devote the kind of time and energy that you know, maybe a dozen of us have devoted to understanding the industry, about why they should care, and if they do care, why they should be anything other than persuaded that this is sort of a phantasmagorical, and by the way, probably dangerous thing, because maybe Hamas is using it. Wait a minute, Zuckerberg wanted to take over the world, and uh, FTX, and oh my God, there was $2 trillion in value loss. I mean, just the, the parade of horribles, you alluded to it. The parade of horribles is very real, and it's not... There are a few members of Congress who I think for you know reasons that don't withstand a ton of scrutiny are just anti-crypto. Most of them are just like, wait a minute, I got a war in Israel, Gaza, I got, you know, my long list of 30 things that really matter to my constituents, And tell me again why I should care about a stable coin that by the way nobody's using for a payment mechanism. And so so I think the problem is, and what I keep urging the industry to do, sometimes I feel like it falls on death of ears, is that at least on my side of the aisle, people are gonna sit up and take notice when Yes, there's more education. You know, I keep saying this as a national security guy. I really want bad guys using, uh, you know, open, scrutinizable ledgers uh, to move money around. I'd much rather have them doing that than you know sending boxes of cash around or using hawala. Um, but you know, we we need to hear and see the use cases. I've been hearing about remittances forever. I keep harping on remittances. Eight percent to send a dollar to Guatemala, right? Do it for ten basis points, and all of a sudden, a lot of members are going to sit up and say, "Wow." We're going to decentralize finance. There's going to be an anarcho-syndicalist rehashing of Web3. And none of that stuff is, is, here's the answer. 97, 96, they're explaining the internet to me. And somebody says to me, not a very bright guy, <laughs> you're going to p- type a couple of things into a computer. Three days later, a book is going to show up in your mailbox. I'm like, oh my god, a book is going to show up in my. So th- that's the level of use case that needs to get told about this industry. And it has not
4: been told. Well, let me let me let me uh, take on that. Uh, to say that uh, I wouldn't tell somebody on the street in Buenos Aires that they're not using a digital tokenized payment. Tether is the preferred uh, uh, form of payment now in a broken system that, since 1830, has defaulted 40 times, and we're going to see if this new, very uh, avant-garde provocative new president may change it to a a more successful uh, capital system or not. We'll see, jury's out. But the point is that in dysfunctional markets, you actually see people on the blockchain using it for payments that we don't find necessary or available here in the United States because we have a robust, very developed, very competitive, multi-jurisdictional, thousand ways to pay for something. So that would be one point. And then I think in uh, in the documentation, I agree with that. I think that uh, that blockchain payment system will work. And I think if you interview companies that compete in that space, whether it's MoneyGram or Western Union or others, I think people will in fact introduce a, a, uh, a tokenized dollar payment that will drop commission rates and will make that product much more available uh, on the dreams of when uh, Mr. Zuckerberg came to our committee several years ago and pitched uh, pitched Libra. so. Uh, and then uh, I know some companies say that they aren't interested in crypto, uh, but they have enormous uh, investments in blockchain space for tokenized payments on a wholesale basis uh, around the world to avoid currency translation. And uh, uh, whether they're saying that in Davos or on CNBC, I, I don't think that's supported by the reality. Their companies are, in fact, using blockchain and they are going to drive down agency costs on global Uh, multilateral finance.
2: Let me feed off of uh, some very important things you both have said um, about the mood and the environment in the U.S. and the innovation. Um, Is it difficult for the U.S. to lead in this space in crypto innovation, in part because of the conservative nature of our system, the functioning financial system, for the most part, there are unbanked, of course, but you can find a bank, small, medium, large, of, of any sort around the country. Payments work pretty well. Um, is this an environment that's just difficult to innovate, and do we worry that the innovation is going to go offshore to Europe, to China, to other places?
3: My 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 very quick answer to that um, is that uh, it, we we shouldn't. We absolutely shouldn't. I mean, you can't name another space in which we have not sort of led the world in innovation. This is. Uh, But I understand why there is hesitancy. I mean, um, you know, uh, in the space of all of our lifetimes, we saw a financial meltdown Mm -hmm. in 2009 that was as bad as anything since 1929. Mm -hmm. And so everybody is a little bit conditioned by that. Um, And then, of course, there have been echoes, right? It was whether it's the Silicon Valley Bank and Associated Banks or whatnot. But, But I do think that there's a sense that uh, you know, when you're building the internet, you know, okay. I mean, I don't. I don't think when we were when we were building the internet, we anticipated some of the scary things that would come out of it. But, you know, okay. So I'm going to be able to send in, you know, something called an email to my. You know, when you're when you start talking about people putting meaningful retirement funds into a strange asset class that 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 you know uh, that, that that people don't really really understand, I, I just, the stakes just feel a lot higher. Right. Harrison, what
4: do you think? Well, I think America's always led in technology and we always have incumbent uh, players in the economic society that would be dislocated by innovation. Uh, tellers uh, were dislocated in 1976 by ATM machines. Uh, branches, People who built bank branches were dislocated by remote ATM machines. One didn't need to build a whole bank branch. and so. Technology advances at the heart of financial services and the American culture. So, sure, they're incumbent players where there's some discomfort here. But that's why, again, I argue that if we have a framework and lay out the rules of the road, and that is a federally overseen and properly regulated environment, you get the best of both worlds. You get innovation, and you get failure. I mean, Jimmy and I were both in the markets in the 90s. And in a highly regulated market of 1998 to 2000, you had uh, almost $5 trillion lost in a regulated market, which was people didn't buy a pet on pet.com, and they did not get their food from Hank Paulson's favorite IP. <laughs> and so it didn't work out. We're going to always have losses in a capitalist society. We want to minimize those. We want to make sure that people have the information they need to make an informed decision, particularly those who are have small, uh, you know, can't can't tolerate that risk. And I think, again, you do that with the regulatory framework.
2: You both are incredible representatives, by the way. Um, enormous amount of uh, you know, experience and attention to these issues in your current positions. You've also had prior roles where you've touched the international financial system and done various policy-related uh, uh, work in that system. How do you see all of this playing out internationally? Uh, the Chinese interest in their digital yuan. The the Bank of International Settlements has the Enbridge project, which is trying to, you know, innovate around the use of stable coin for settlement and cross-border payments. Um, You have the BRICS plus even talking about using digital currencies to displace the dollar. How are you thinking about the international aspects of the evolution of this technology and how
3: even our adversaries are thinking about it? Um, well you again I'll say what I said before which is you, you, you'd, you'd much rather lead on innovation um, than follow uh, if for no other reasons than for economic reasons um, and you know I think there's a little bit of a snowball effect innovation attracts innovation and so it would be a real shame to Wake up and discover that you know the innovation was happening in the Gulf or in Europe, and this was actually I wrote a white paper on CBDC, which I know is you know draw, uh, you know become very political since. But my view on CBDC was I don't I don't know if there I don't know if it's going to be appealing to that many people. But wouldn't you hate to wake up and discover that there's a sterling or a euro CBDC that everybody's using as a payment mechanism? So why not keep 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 the work up. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I really hope that this, this is the whole reason we're doing what we're doing, to, mm-hmm. tr- to try to make sure that we don't sacrifice our, our, our traditional innovative edge. I do take a little bit of a realistic view of, you know, I mean, there's, the, there's these theses that are floated that, you know, if there's going to be some stable coin or some payment mechanism or store of value that is going to displace the dollar, not quickly, not quickly. I mean, there's lots of fundamental reasons why people keep the reserves that they do that have everything to do with the weighting of their trade. Um, with the long-term perceptions around the dollar. I don't worry too much about the Chinese CBDC. I mean, I think we all know what that is designed to do, and I, if I, I for one, am not signing up for it. So, um, again, I, I think that some of the concerns are a little bit overblown, but why would we not do what we need to do to continue to be at, at the forefront of innovation?
4: Well, I think I think a, 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 a payment stable coin uh, converting fiat US dollars into a stable coin that's well regulated, well considered with a fine reputation and excellent transparency and oversight and capital standards will be the uh, buyer at the margin of short-term treasury bills that's good for the dollar, it's good for international trade, it's good to go to a tokenized digital payment for a blockchain just like we prefer to use a real-time payment in the banking system or an ACH in the banking system. And let me let me share when when a group of companies uh, countries uh, goes to a conclave for which their government's paid their travel expenses and they sit around and it's a group of country, Companies that don't have a fully convertible currency. They don't have a rule of law. They don't have a court system They don't have a transparent well-regulated economy and you tell me you want them me to take their CBDC or their stablecoin count me out Count me out. It's ridiculous. You can't go to court and get your money back in China. You can't go to court and get your money back in half the countries that were, quote, in the announcement about the BRICs. So I don't recommend that as a business strategy, and I don't think realistic people at the consumer level or institutional level will either. Um, That doesn't mean, though, we don't need to be doing things that preserve the importance of uh, the dollar as the reserve currency in the world, and one of them might be balancing the budget, for example, or having a more mature approach to our federal finance first and foremost. And then secondly, if we maintain an excellent legal system, if we maintain the right regulatory system, if we have an open capital market and if we have a dollar-based stable coin, then I think that's the the right direction for that long run. And then we'll see how technology evolves, right? You know, this is sort of your point about your white paper. Let's kind of see where the technology evolves, but the private sector should uh, be the leader and what well, our job is to provide the, the, the ways and means and the conditions of a fair-minded, open regulatory framework and get out of the way.
2: Let me ask you this because there's, there's so much attention, certainly up on the hill in the national security community for years about the risks of, in particular crypto, the ability of rogue actors, state, non-state to get access to capital they wouldn't. Otherwise, we've seen the North Koreans, sort of the masters of cyber heists in crypto uh, uh, crypto events where they've profited to the tune of you know hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. They've used the Lazarus Group. How do you think about those risks as they've evolved, um, and how do you talk to you know real skeptics and critics about those risks in the context of what is a, your very measured uh, view of the of the technology?
3: Well. Um Overall, I, I stand by something I said in, the very, in your very first question, which is um, y- 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 there will always be North Koreans and criminal syndicates, et cetera. You would really like to have them in a more technological environment, not a less technological environment. Um, when we're wearing our intelligence hats, uh, the answer to the question, are you scared by what you see every day, is you wouldn't believe the technology that we see deployed against those threats every day. So um, and, and and obviously the pinnacle of that is a, is a public ledger um, where you know through a variety of means um, known and unknown um, law enforcement and others can get a sense of what's really happening out there so um, yeah I I I wouldn't say that the risk is not there. It clearly is. And the risk of fraud in particular in a universe where you've got Dogecoin and things coming up that nobody heard of three months ago, that's, a, that's, an, that's an environment that is rife for fraud, which is, by the way, one of the reasons we should get these bills done yeah. so that we can start drawing some fairly bright lines. But again, I do think that there is a, a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how much you would like to have bad actors in a uh, much more technological, and therefore, let let me use the word, auditable environment.
4: Yeah, let's look at M1, and a lot of M1 is outside the United States and $100 bills floating around. I mean, some, I've forgotten the statistic off the top of my head of what percentage of newly issued U.S. $100 bills are exported to countries around the world, but we've got criminal elements using all forms of money, not just crypto and crypto when done properly is uh, the easiest place to be caught potentially. And also if we wanna stop terror groups from having access to unlimited money, we might start uh, with our own policy of giving $18 billion back to Iran, which is probably not a good idea, no matter how well intentioned. Uh, So, I just will stand, I agree with Jim, I just stand on our earlier comments. Uh, We want to interdict bad behavior, whether it's with cash, bank loans, stealing, uh, you know, ransomware. But we have to have, if we set a high standard here, I know the EU will set a high standard, and we will export that high standard around the world. And by sanctioning people who don't have a high standard, we spread it. And that in turn reinforces the dollar as the reserve currency, reinforces the fact that the United States, we have the dominant players in the cloud. We have the dominant players on network uh, platforms around the the world. And so if we then show that we can have the right approach to regulation in blockchain and uh, tokenized payments, we will extend that reach and extend our law enforcement capability, but more importantly, extend our jobs and economic development opportunities.
2: We just have a couple of minutes left. Um, Let me ask sort of a combined question. First, asking you to look into a crystal ball a bit. What happens in 2024? Uh, Do we get a comprehensive crypto bill? Is it too divisive politically? We're moving into the silly season of presidential politics um, are the enforcement actions uh, going to be more aggressive, less aggressive? W- what are you thinking? And, and and also, then, what excites you about this space? What keeps your attention? Like you said, Congressman, you've got a lot of things to worry about. Your constituents have a lot of things to worry about, and, and no doubt are raising those to your attention. Why do you stay interested in this space?
3: Well, on the on where we're going, we better, better defer to the guy who's in the majority. <laughs> are we? <laughs> barely. Barely. <laughs>
4: Uh, let me start out there and um, and say that uh, we spent uh, we marked up the stable coin bill just for people who don't follow this intimately we marked up the stable coin bill and the regulatory framework bill in the House AG and Financial Service Committee last July uh, we then during the fall took every amendment and we took every a uh, suggestion from a member that was an amendment, but it was an idea and we worked that back into the text. So we finished the end of calendar 2023 with, with, with what I think is a very good working draft of the fit for purpose regulatory framework bill. And we continued to engage with our colleagues on the other side of the aisle and in the administration and in the uh, regulatory environment, how to craft uh, the best outcome on the stable coin bill. I don't feel obligated to move them together, but I do I do want to keep them on the same track. And then from a legislative point of view, we want to coordinate that with the effort of the Congress to move a farm bill or not move one. In other words, that's a decision that the Congress has to make as well, led by the Ag Committee in both houses, by the Democratic majority in the Senate and the Republican majority in the House, because we uh, uh, both committees have to have floor jurisdiction over that legislative debate, and I want to be sensitive to what the leadership's uh, view is on moving the farm bill or not. So I still am optimistic that you'll see those bills come to fruition during uh, twenty four. I've been very pleased with every meeting I've been in, both uh, bipartisan as well as uh, in the administration on those. But there's a timing issue, and you know, timing is everything and in politics true. But when you have, so many things on our plate uh, we're all navigating that and it's also obviously a bicameral issue as well.
3: Uh, Let me get the piece about why do I say it and this is this is an individual view but um, here's in no particular order the three reasons that I'm really excited and then I have some some areas of skepticism but the three reasons I'm really excited is you know I've been here 15 years and 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 I've sort of you know it, it regulating the financial services industry is so so hard you never get it right you try you never get it right it's a huge political fight you know what you know what incumbents in the financial services industry need? A lot more competition and disruption, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in quasi oligopolistic markets, think credit cards, sorry, friends at MasterCard, but, <laughs> you know, in quasi oligopolistic markets, and a lot of the financial markets are that way, disruption really excites me, right? Because costs come down, service levels go up. Number two, anything related to provenance, right? You know, like I, I bought a condo three years ago. I paid some medieval service to do a title search, whatever the hell that is, right? So anything related to provenance uh, is an ownership I think is yeah, gonna be yeah. huge. And then lastly, you know, it turns out that the plumbing of our financial system, first of all, it's unbelievably fragmented, right? Equities is one thing, treasuries are another. Like the tokenization of financial assets, that could, that could kind of revolutionize the wholesale level of financial mm-hmm. services, which I hope, you know, Makes for a safer, secure, more efficient, you know, instant settlement—that kind of yeah, thing. That's pretty yeah. exciting to think about. That's super for, for the two of us. I don't yeah. know that anybody else yeah. gets it. A- yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I think that's all the time we have. We don't thank want to on your time. Great to be Lines with you. Thank, you. thank you so much. I want—I want to say on behalf of at least myself as an American citizen, my family, and FTD, want to thank you for your service, yeah. for your thoughtfulness, and for your bipartisan spirit. Uh, it's really important for the country. Uh, and we couldn't be more happy to have talked to you about these issues. So thank, thank, you. thank you very, you very much. much. Please thank join you. me in thanking the
3: conference.
2: Now we're going to turn this over to Elaine, who's a real expert moderator. Um, Elaine Dazinski will introduce the uh, private sector panel. We hope you remain with us. This is an incredibly insightful group that we have, and uh, I'm excited to listen and learn. Elaine, as I said, is the uh, head and uh, senior director for the Center on Economic and Financial Power. She is leading the innovation at FDD and has been incredibly thoughtful in the space. So Elaine, over to you and to our great colleagues.
1: So why don't we go into round two. Um, I think we have a lot to chew on from, from that first conversation. Juan, thanks again for, uh, for leading us through that, that the first part of that conversation. Uh, just very quickly, um, introductions once again. Um, Dante Disparte, Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy for Circle. Welcome. Nice to have you. Thank you. Sujit Rahman, General Counsel at TRM Labs. Um, previously a partner at Sidley Austin, uh, served in a number of uh, roles in the U.S. government as well. So Sujit, nice to have you. Thank you. And then Amit Sharma, uh, CEO of Finclusive Capital. Um, for those of you who may not have heard of, of Finclusive, a hybrid fintech red, uh, regtech company, uh, and also uh, a, um, a Department of Treasury alum. So, great to have you all here. Um, I wanna start with, uh, with, with a quote, actually, uh, from an interview on CNBC in Davos earlier this month Uh, Jamie Dimon was being interviewed and he made the following comment. If you can't solve the bad use cases, meaning illicit finance, trafficking, etc. in Bitcoin, the government will probably have to shut it down. So I thought this might be a good starting point for uh, a question to the panel. Can industry shut down the illicit use cases in crypto?
0: Well, I'm I'm happy to happy to start. So um, first of all, I think that if you hearken back to the internet and the early internet, but for cat videos and our proclivity to do bizarre things between the keyboard and the chair, all of the things that we now take for granted, such as streaming, connectivity, Zoom, and all of the rest, probably would not have been possible. And that like any novel wave of technology, the early use cases might feel a little bit perhaps um, not terribly valuable, and certainly not to anybody who enjoys the benefits of status quo or having won the postal code lottery in terms of financial or technological access. But we also have to think about um, why is Jamie Dimon so vehemently protesting the advent of this novel technology? And it should be noted that the very CEO who once upon a time told anybody in his organization if I catch you trading Bitcoin or crypto, you'd be fired on the spot, has also stood up for a bank and for any company one of the most um, uh, powerful thoughtful technologically advanced payments divisions known as Onyx that is leveraging this very technology so I think the banker doth protest too much and the rest of us ought to ask why uh, it would be would be my counterpoint and, and candidly I think the, f- the firms on the panel with me will be able to outline exactly how the good actors in the space, can combat uh, and identify the illicit activity and probably do so with a better scorecard than many of the very banks themselves.
1: Thank you. Yeah,
5: I I would just build off of that. I I thought something Congressman Himes said was very interesting about how there's auditability when it comes to blockchains. And that's something that really sets apart distributed ledger technology from the traditional financial system. And so when it comes to illicit uses or when it comes to the risks of this technology, you actually can identify it you can empirically try to figure out what's going on, and you can actually measure it. And that's part, it's sort of using technology to identify the risks and try to to minimize that gap. So I think it's important to understand sort of what the technology is all about and how you can use advances in technology in a way in this context that's actually quite different than the traditional financial system. In fact, we have, you know, the Treasury, if you look at their recent uh, terrorist financing assessment, essentially saying we should be using more technology when it comes to the cash economy, right, to try to figure out where there might be weak spots in the uh, financial system. This is inherently a technological system. And so my own view is that we can actually do a lot more when it comes to identifying risks and addressing risks in this space than even with the traditional financial system. And it's important not to lose sight of that as we think about policy in this area
6: is this uh, is this working um, i completely agree with with dante and Sujit. i would offer three additional points to this you know especially given the quote that you that you talked about earlier if we had uh, if we've eliminated 100% of the illicit finance that happens with hard dollar cash which remains the most laundered asset on the planet and if you if you look at the amount of cash that j p morgan runs through and they have not counted the illicit finance concerns of cash we're also talking about institutions at the top of the market in institutional finance that have introduced financial engineering products like the double synthetic CDO, which at the end of the day, you know, put a lot of homeowners out of homes. So, you know, I- illicit finance and economic risks abound in the context of financial engineering. As we think about technology, and Sujit so makes the right point, not all technological innovations and financial engineering is to enhance and exacerbate risk. There is so much technology, te- technological innovation happening on blockchains, happening in Web3, that are explicitly to reduce risk. And Representative Himes made, you know, one of those key components as it related to provenance. The whole advent of digital identity and the ability to share the provenance of one's own personal information to sensitive sectors across financial intermediaries of all types in real time is an advent of that technology that comes at the heart of know your customer anti-money laundering that lays at the foundation of what we can otherwise do with the technology. And so I think that we need to balance that approach and not take those assumptions, but also understand where that technology is emanating from, from, you know, from folks that are trying to actually explicitly mitigate risk.
1: Well, to that point, uh, and maybe a question for any of you, what should industry be doing then to further articulate what that use case is? Um, What should be done? What the guardrails need to be? Uh, I think there's still uh, a challenge in terms of understanding why with the, uh, the, uh, with the visibility and transparency that is supposed to be built into this type of technology, why we still have so many questions about who's using it, where funds are going, uh, why there is some proliferation of uh, cases of, uh, of illicit use. Uh, so how do we get a handle on that? If there really is traceability, auditability, then what's the missing link to actually square that? Circle.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I will take the uh, <laughs> opportunity to square a circle. The um, <laughs> so I, I think I think fundamentally um, I've been in virtually every public or private hearing on this topic since 2019. I was actually going to wear a T-shirt today that says uh, "I moved on from Libra, so should you." <laughs> um, the <laughs> the I think one of the challenges is we're still talking about the technology as opposed to the outcomes or the results. And so, you know, crypto is short form for cryptography. Blockchains are obviously novel technologies. But as opposed to, you know, broadly, the public policy debate has still been about, you know, the tech itself. And any time a technology is a protagonist, it probably means it's very early. But what I could then say, you know, what, what Libra was aspirationally, Circle is operationally. What I could tell you about running the operations of a company like Circle is that every single one of the use cases, when a digital dollar is made possible and you have programmable, device-centric, low-cost, nearly instant money that could be beamed all over the planet, extraordinary things happen. When the United Nations, for example, worked with Circle, Stellar, and MoneyGram to get digital disaster assistance in the form of this digital currency, a stable coin, Uh, to Ukrainian refugees, we were able to do it at a cost lower than the UN's own targets for cross-border remittances. The SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, want remittance cost to 3% globally. We were able to transact those those, uh, funds of money, money flows in a lower cost basis than the UN's own targets for remittances. And, And in that sense, this is not competing with the traditional financial system. It's actually going places where brick and mortar banking cannot. Um, And I think those types of cases abound all over the world. Um, But that might be hard for folks sitting in this building here in Washington to fully appreciate, in no small measure, because I think many of us won the birth postal code lottery. If by birth you're banked, you might have a hard time personally understanding the use case for financial inclusion uh, that really reaches to places where we just simply cannot go. And that's just one of the many use cases I think are made possible by this technology.
5: I would just echo what Dante said. I also think I mean we've heard, heard a couple of times today about how we really are kind of like the early days of the internet. and that's why it really is difficult actually to foretell where this technology will take you. I do think the industry could do a better job of talking about what the use cases are. Dante mentioned a couple of very good examples. You know, you just look in the press and there are you know, there's a small example of De Beers now essentially, you know has a they trace their diamonds from point A all the way to point Z on a blockchain. Now that has you know, important kind of uh, implications for you know blood diamonds. You know where are we getting our diamonds from, et cetera. Uh, so those are supply chain issues. Those are kind of basic applications. But I don't think people are even aware of that. Then you start talking about some of the financial uh, products that are out there. Got to be very careful about that. On the other hand, you know when you apply smart contracts to some of these concepts, I mean when you do eliminate intermediaries, when you do el- eliminate the middleman, you really do cut out the fees. There are concrete benefits to that but you've also got to address the risk, right? So that's where I think so much of the public discussion has been focusing on the risks. I'm at a company that evaluates the risk, so I don't have a problem with that, but I think for the industry to really continue growing, that's where we need to really focus on are the positive use cases as well.
6: And I don't think the the industry, to your point, Elaine, um, has done a very poor job of, of illustrating the broader use cases that can scale, a very poor job of illustrating how the technology itself mitigates risk, very poor job of ensuring that there's adequate both appetite and education as it result as as related to how law enforcement proactively uses the technology from a you know investigations interdiction perspective. And so I'm an equal opportunity antagonizer here. You know, the, the investment community, the venture capital community, the Silicon Valley community has been chasing shiny objects, NFTs and trade churn, and and you have blowups where you have so-called unicorns being, you know, being driven in an, in, a, in an environment where folks are looking for that sort of next eight by 10 by return. We work with certain companies for the better part of a year, two years working to integrate what we have within the context of, and we have TRM uh, Labs incorporated into our stack, which is an embedded compliance. In the same way we talk about embedded finance, we we work at embedding compliance. How do you embed compliance in ways that address, at the core, illicit finance, financial crimes compliance that at the heart is know your customer? And if we can do that across public and private wallets, if we can do that with custodial and non-custodial solutions, we now embed both privacy controls and auditability and transparency that the sector needs and the regulators want. And we need to do a better job of illustrating that. We need to get investors behind that infrastructure in ways that pave the way for regulators to devise regulation that enables that environment to thrive.
1: So I want to uh, go a little bit deeper on this concept of embedding, because I think that's critical as we think about the the law enforcement connectivity um, to what you all are building. Um, What does that embedded feature look like? What else needs to be done to kind of unlock the black box for law enforcement uh, to really address the illicit finance uh, related challenges?
5: Well, I'll offer one thought, Elaine. Um, I used to oversee crypto enforcement at the Justice Department. I was very actually impressed at the time of the work that law enforcement was doing, really at the cutting edge of this this space. You know, some of the techniques that um, law enforcement, as well as the intelligence community, was able to apply Um, are concepts that, you know, I think most people may not be aware of. So in terms of tracking and tracing, um, there's always a need for more sort of training, more funding to make sure that sort of, you know, more people are sort of, you know, trained up on these issues. But I actually think the technology is there. I work at a company that's sort of at the cutting edge of that. The difficulty for us is that, you know, you're talking about a global surface. And every single day there are, you know, trillions more crypto addresses being created. And so, how do you stay on top of that surface area? What kind of data, you know, storage costs are associated with being able to uh, monitor what's going on? That's where a lot of the challenges are, right? It's, I think the the technology is there. You know, this is one area where the United States really is a leader when it comes to identifying the illicit use of crypto and being able to create a topography around it. But that, you know, that space is exponentially growing, almost by the day, and that's where the challenge is, right? That's where the bad actors are able to essentially create spaces for themselves, because there is so much surface area, It's how do you pick and choose what you want to do? And that's where policymakers have to make decisions, right? The intelligence community has to decide, I'm focused on this particular slice. When you do that, that's great, but then there's gonna be a lot of stuff happening over here. I think that's part of the challenge for us. You know, when it comes to law enforcement, it's making sure that, you know, you have a global idea of what's going on, but you're also able to f- focus when you need to. And that trade-off is actually one of the difficulties that I think that we we face. And if
0: I could, I was just gonna add, one of the things that I think is really a crypto conundrum, if you will, is that under US leadership of the Financial Stability Board now nearly five years ago or more, the global calls to regulate, the global calls to action, and candidly, many of the clarion calls about the risks in this space were first made. Then you fast forward, the president's working group on financial markets echoed those same calls domestically. Now, nearly five years later, the regulator can feel vindicated that a lot of the risks they called would in fact manifest themselves and they've shown their ugly faces. Much of them had more to do with garden variety fraud than the technology itself, FTX, and there's a long laundry list to that. Uh, But we still haven't done anything in the country, right? And so to many who look at this like a national security priority, it's a digital currency space race. We won the actual space race when our political leaders gave us a destination. And thus far, status quo and no action seems to be the way, the way we're running the domain.
6: I would, just, I would just add one or two additional contextual points. And you, you, you brought up
0: my former Treasury alum
6: position. I had the good fortune because that gentleman over there hired me into Treasury when I was wet behind the ears, early 20s. Um, one of the things we talked about, quite frankly, a lot during that time in an immediately post-911 context is how do we leverage the power and might of the dollar and access to a vibrant capital market. And one of the questions we under asked was, how do we export that dollar and the might and power and values-based economy of the capital markets here in the United States externally? Had we put every small business in Iraq and Afghanistan to a small dollar, you know, uh, a US-denominated account, that would have gone much farther to win hearts and minds than much of these sort of blockades that we put up, saying you can't access the dollar. Right in the same way that Dante's experience, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, illustration of the ability to put digital forms of U.S. dollar-backed currency into the hands of a fleeing refugee, incredibly powerful. Imagine if we had this technology where we could have digitally put stimulus checks and PPP payments into wallets at the time of of COVID. Fraud leakage and waste would have gone to zero, and we had tons of fraud leakage and waste. and 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 Representative Hill made an apt point that I hope everyone talked about like or or, or saw or heard is if we balance budgets and understand tokenized value, we increase the transparency of our own ability to understand our own fiscal matters. That is power. These are the innovations that are happening on blockchains and in Web3 with digital forms of currency that no, no longer have to be bound by five day a week you know, clearance and settlement systems, that you can have a financial services system that is on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That matters to a small business owner that needs to get paid to pay his electric bill on Friday, but can't access his own paycheck because his bank won't clear it for three more days. So we have all these systems and all these great payments that create disservices
1: for our own people.
6: That is the power of tokenization. That's the power of what this technology provides. We need to thrive in that. We need to tell better stories doing it. Yeah.
1: Thank you. So, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, whether we need a CBDC, a centrally backed digital currency. Is there a role for a CBDC in um, in the in the system that you all envision? What does that look like? How do we think about a stablecoin versus a CBDC versus uh, uh, tokenization of value in a Bitcoin or something else that might uh, serve in a, in a different capacity. What, what does that look like?
0: <laughs> well, I'm happy to start <laughs> <laughs> having, um,
1: no,
0: <laughs> having written a paper titled The Case Against CBDCs. Um, the argument against it, at least at the highest level, would be the FAA doesn't fly planes and build jet engines but it does designate the rules of conduct and travel in the skies and creates optionality, and as a result, I think we're better or safer for having the choice. Um, But if you are a well-structured, well-regulated stablecoin, like we have offered at Circle with USDC, the closer your proximity to the central bank, the better. And as we've learned from the failure of some of the mid-sized banks in our country, if a bank sneezes, the stablecoin issuer catches a cold, and so therefore you are responsive to the monetary policy of the underlying currency that you reference. However, it should tell you a lot that the countries that were looking at central bank digital currencies, the first and the deepest, in this instance, China, opted against blockchain as the technology stack in no small measure because of all the transparency features that we discussed so far, begging serious questions. The other really important geopolitical and geoeconomic question is, no, I do not think the United States should launch a central bank digital currency, especially not a retail variation of it. But we should not seed our seat our at the table uh, on looking at alternative payment systems innovations all over the world. And that seat has been, frankly, not perfectly occupied for quite some time. We should also take a deep look at the domestic payment systems gaps we have in the country. When we needed to move the very funding that Amit alluded to with COVID-19 stimulus and relief to the neediest among us, we couldn't do it in no small measure because the pipes through which we move money are antiquated, they're opaque and they're non-conversant with one another. Um, so I sat on FEMA's advisory council for three years throughout the pandemic and it was, it was a pitiable reality that a fortress nation was brought to its knees um, and little but technology was, was the difference maker for all things including how we move money. And so, so I think the domestic payments conversation including the rollout of FedNow should be welcomed by our society. Mm-hmm but we should also pay close attention to who is protesting the most, and all too often it's par- it's the monopolies and duopolies uh,
5: that Congressman Himes alluded to earlier. I won't add a lot to that. What I would say is there is an example of a CBDC that exists, it's the ECNY, and I think for folks, particularly in the national security space who look at that issue, should be concerned, right? And so I don't have a lot of personal opinions on it, but I think if you look at what the Chinese government, the way it has weaponized its central bank's digital currency, the you know, plans it has to export the digital yuan and link it to the Belt and Road, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, I think it speaks for itself. And I don't know if those values are necessarily consistent with American values. But again, there are folks who think about these issues every day that I'd love to hear more from.
6: Yeah, I, I would just echo the last statement here. And, and, and that is, I think too often that question is asked as a binary, as an either or. And I think we need to start thinking about these things as ants. I mean, we now see governments that are equally financial market participants as they are market makers. We, you know, i come from Vermont. That's why I wear greens, why I could, like, have a physically hard time putting a jacket on these days, which is why I don't have one on now, um, where we go to farmers markets and they have, you know, forms of tokenized value all the time that, you know, that are that are being used. Like, we, we've created this technology and now we're doing it with cryptography on an open web. That gets exciting. There's a reason why 85 plus countries in the world are either exploring, issuing, valuing, or, or driving some kind of CBDC project. And, and arguably over 100 of them, uh, 100 uh, countries are, are at least in research. The last point I think is the biggest, which is at the end of the day, one's currency stands for something. And ours, from the dollar, is backed by a standing army. And if we want to understand the values we want to put in an internationally integrated financial services ecosystem, that's where the conversation is relevant with respect to CBDCs, not because it's a binary choice against true payment stable coins backed, truly backed by that that, that currency, but because it's an and conversation. And if we can understand the values we want to project into an, an internationally integrated financial services ecosystem, that conversation needs to be had.
1: Yeah. So I want to pick up on that, that question about uh, the system that we're building, the values behind that, the values framework, and how we connect this into uh, what's happening in the world today. (laughs) Uh, Is there there a conversation that needs to be uh, had, maybe it's underway in in, uh, pockets, I don't know, but around uh, what what an allied uh, uh, currency might look like, digital currency, one that uh, maybe uh, brings together uh, allies and partners, democracies, Uh, If you look at the current basket of foreign reserves um, and and, uh, those currencies, you know, the top few are all uh, democratically driven, right? It's the U.S. and a couple of our key allies. The only exception is is China, and they're a little bit further down down the list in terms of the reserve basket. But do we need to be thinking about that as part of our economic power projection over some period of time?
0: (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't, I mean, having put out a white paper that had a basket-backed multi-currency stablecoin construct that looked and felt like the special drawing rights uh-huh. at the, uh, the IMF and the World Bank, right. um, I think it's not the role necessarily of the private sector to fill that void. I think the thing that matters most, and, and, and I would add to the parties that think uh, de-dollarization is not a threat, and that the, the, the challenge in alternative payment systems innovations are not a threat to the United States, I would argue we need to look at this matter with a 10-year horizon as opposed to a quarterly horizon or an electoral horizon. And it's in that domain where I think um, the US is a decade behind the rest of the planet. E-money proliferation, mobile money proliferation, when I was um, at a meeting with the head of the Kenyan central bank not long ago, He laughed at the concept that the United States was sending physical checks to people for government to citizen payments uh, when the the whole of Kenya and the whole of most of Africa, frankly, has been able to sort of leapfrog this kind of phase of uh, brick and mortar banking into an always on device centric domain. And we don't have anything quite like that in the United States right now. So I think that is the piece that creates network effects for dollarization And that's the piece I'm most concerned about. And should make no mistake, the Europeans on this matter are not necessarily allied to this same concept. They have a whole set of rules that are very much uh, in place to have stopped big tech in its tracks, but also advancing very much their central bank digital currency efforts and others. And so that risk of a transatlantic void in this domain is gonna be a very real phenomenon.
6: I would just add, I, I think that's spot on what Dante has said. I would just add that we need to do a little bit of uh, we, we need we need some humble pie in the United States. I was on, I was I testified at House Financial Services on the issue of de-risking. And we, as a matter of policy put out by the United States government, categorize whole countries as higher risk for money laundering and corruption, which what do you think the banks do? They de-risk them. And you have constituents that pound the table with their reps saying, I cannot send literally just basic dollars to my friends, my family in the Caribbean, in parts of Africa, in Latam because we just read the INCSA report at the State Department and how many countries that we say are just at risk for money laundering and corruption, with very little data behind that. And so if we think about a values-based economy, we have to start looking at the diversity of innovation happening in areas that we may not otherwise see as, as being, you know, come up with the same democratic principles, but may have innovations, but have caught up from a democratic principles perspective. And I think that's where the values question really needs to be asked. And if we can purport that with, the, with, with taking a leadership role, and, and quite frankly, we need to catch up to do that, that's when we're gonna make real inroads there. And I think, uh, as Dante pointed out, there's baskets of currencies to, to uh, both quasi-government and private sector innovations in this space that really will, will take this off.
1: Great. I'm gonna open it up now for some uh, questions from the audience. Would anyone like to get us started?
7: Hi, John Quigg with the Applied Physics Lab. So a question, you were talking about de-risking. A lot of monetary transactions happen between rather sketchy individual parties. Uh, As we seek to secure this new way forward, and as fiat currency perhaps goes by the wayside, how do you see the security regime being implemented? How do you see it being a nation-state versus an international order, and how would you see the enforcement going with a fairly resistant customer base? That's an easy
6: one, right? <laughs> um, sure. I mean, I'll I'll start with that. I I would I would immediately challenge the premise or the statement that you know. Most transactions happen between sketchy people. just it's a pessimistic view of the world, and I think that for the most part that folks aren't sketchy, right. I think that that we operate in the fringes with respect to a lot of criminal behavior, illicit finance behavior and the like. And there are folks that are going to exploit other counterparties. I think the technology in this case needs to be provided with use cases that allow for allied nations, companies, and the like to bring that technology to fore. to, robustly illustrate transparency and auditability that gets to the second part of the question which those elements are already being adopted by law enforcement agencies within the United States and outside the United States cross border cooperation on investigations leveraging blockchain and blockchain tools and analytics like TRM are happening today that is exciting and i think if we can evaluate uh, if we can enhance and, and drive and support both of those in tandem. Then I think we get to an international order of adoption that is going to be happening on an open web. That's that's the real technological reality. we are we're operating more on an on web native technology, web native value transfer, web native issuance of value. That's what's exciting, and those are what needs the
5: values, uh, you know, from a law enforcement perspective. Yeah, what I would just add, um, and I think our questioner might have another follow-up, but I'll just add one quick thought. You know, what is another unique aspect of this this technology is that you can risk individual wallets, right? And that's something that's quite different yeah. than our traditional system, and there are algorithms that can help you do that, and you can feed those algorithms in a way that either, you know, increase the risk or decrease the risk. And so it really is, but, you know, I, I, that it takes time to develop that kind of a system, um, and you wanna build in privacy guardrails and other kinds of guardrails that protect you know, individual privacy. But again, what I think is really revolutionary about this technology and the tools that we're developing around it is that you really can assess risk on an individualized basis and do it in a way that, again, promotes privacy, but also does it in a systematic way. So I don't think we, any of us really knows exactly what that system is gonna look like you know, writ large, but at least that glimmer of possibility is there. Whereas again, in our traditional system, it's kind of, you know, you get the report, you look at it, and you just debank yep. entire categories of people, which is unfair and <laughs> it's not right. So, my hope is that we can move towards that other, you know, more equitable, fair, equal kind of system.
7: So, I'll just sharpen my question a little. Yes. So, I say the Panama Papers refute some of what you said optimistically. Uh, I've always felt that there should be three internets one that's completely open for governmental transactions, second layer would be me talking to my bank, financial transactions, things that should be on record. And then third, for stuff that I wanna do privately, I, I don't want anybody looking, but I'm saying that figuratively. Uh, and if you could reflect in, in your answer, how we'd achieve that level of privacy versus public accountability.
0: I'm, I'm happy to um, add 32nd adjoinder to that. So one of the reasons I became interested in the technology itself was actually after the Equifax breach. Think about, by show of hands, how many of you have a social security number?
4: Congratulations, (laughs)
0: you are exposed for the rest of your natural life to insidious forms of financial lockout, identity theft, and all the rest. And, And that's problematic. And one of the reasons that's a problem is because the fundamental architecture of the traditional financial system is literally imperiled by single points of failure. Uh, we we live in a world dominated by one of three credit bureaus, Equifax was one of them, and all of the data is out there for the rest of your natural lives. The other vulnerability is that your alphanumeric unchanging social security number is granted to you depending on your life story, either at birth or along the way, is a gating factor for financial choices made by third parties. Wouldn't it be nice if you could permission in the rest of the world to understand that information? If you could Um, not have your PII, your personally identifiable information subject to uh, an oil spill of data of this nature as the precondition for getting financial access. The solution technologically is called public blockchain infrastructure. The solution technologically is cryptographically protected mobile enabled wallets. Those two preconditions are merely technologies and tools. They could be privacy enhancing, privacy preserving. Um, but in the hands of good actors, a hammer could do great things. It could also destroy a lot of things.
6: Yeah, and I, I think the, the, the answer to your question is spot on. I, I, I think part of what Dante is talking about here, too, is we are headfirst into the intersection between technology, financial engineering, and innovation, and privacy today. And the technology exists today to be able to take sensitive parts of your personal data social security number, device, email, address, biometrics, and the like, and enable the ownership of that information to the individual. And the ability for that ownership goes a long way from just being exploited by large companies that, you know, by their stated objectives, exploit your personal data, to the ability to transact with any counterparty in the world in an open banking system because you still need to run KYC, know your customer. So if you have the intersection of permissioned and ownership of your personal data in a financial services access channel that is not simply categorically denying you access because you meet some, uh, you know, some illustration of what risk might be. Otherwise, we we debank all women, we debank all immigrants, we debank all black and brown people, we debank all small businesses because they're all categorically high risk, right? Some data point, some credit bureau, some policy or governing governing body declared it. But we now have the ability to look at actual risk not the perception of risk and 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 leverage privacy technology in the way
8: that, that you're talking about
1: i'm going to go over here to ian talley uh,
8: two questions um uh, it seems to me that the one of the biggest problems is uh, communication uh messaging you all mentioned that uh hearing you speak you are um talking about very uh, big ideas in complex uh, lingo, um, some of which uh, I don't think I understand all of the implications of what you're saying. So uh, how do you do that in the US, particularly in the current political environment where uh, there is an increased apprehension, uh, fear of government sort of um, uh, control of your data? Uh, and how do you do it internationally uh, to uh, truly leverage what the KI- KYC data transparency is supposed to do, which is seems where the real problem is in terms of implementing a crypto... Um, uh, um, a, a, a healthy crypto system, if you will.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy happy to just provide a little bit of context, but I, I suspect Sujit will add to this as well. Um, it's a great question, Ian. The um, I think the bigger tension in the U.S., at least in the policy conversation, is actually bigger than crypto. To me, it feels like a deep technophobia, you know, and um, and. And so we're still hung up on describing the terms of art and the jargon, even in today's conversation. I think we should have a swear jar or a tip jar to pay for happy hour afterwards every time someone uses jargon that is inaccessible. But there's also something to be said for the inability of our, despite I think what we saw from French Hill and Jim Himes on the stage up here earlier, bipartisanship is that in order for this to work, we actually need an industrial policy in the country that wants this to work. And and if you go to Brazil and you talk to the Brazilian central banks and the banks and the non-banks and the technology firms, they have an industrial policy that has public, private, and all other actors together in a room figuring out how do we modernize the core infrastructure of the Brazilian economy and the banking system. Not stable coins, central bank digital currencies and deposit tokens are all competing to build a better mousetrap, but rather how do we ensure that there's modernization in the core infrastructure in the country. And that same industrial policy exists in Europe, in Asia, all throughout the rest of the world, and the United States is a little bit of an outlier. And and that's the part that concerns me most, and so it's not just the the one angle around KYC or other aspects of the technology. We're an outlier uh, on, on the whole piece of advancing technological competitiveness, despite the fact that we're a country that is the net producer and net exporter of many of, many of these technologies, um, we've just crossed our arms, I think, societally on, on how to really embrace them. Such a
5: great question. And I, I don't think there's an easy answer, Ian, uh, to be honest with you. I, I think there's you know, diversity in the world about how people think about crypto in particular. So if you're in Argentina, or you're in Turkey, or you're in other parts of the world, crypto means something to you in a way that's just fundamentally different to people in the United States. Uh, you know, there was reference made earlier in the panel about inflation and other kinds of you know, instability in a banking system. And so you see people voting with their feet in certain respects in other parts of the world, right? And that's why you see some of these global exchanges have tremendous volume on them. It's because there's that, there's that feel, there's that need for it. In the United States, you know, so much of our conversation is about security versus commodity or other kinds of very kind of abstruse legal concepts. Which I think does make it a little bit difficult for people, just regular folks, to understand why. why does this apply to me? Why does this matter? Which is why, when I think about this issue, I tend to think about kind of distributed ledger technology generally, how organizing information through distributed networks is fundamentally transformative. You know, the the gentleman asked about um, security of your data. I mean, securing data on blockchains is incredibly more protective than having a honeypot database that's just waiting to be hacked. And every single person in this room has their social security number leaked through some hack or another. Those are the kinds of applications of this technology that I think, frankly, the industry could do better about. And for at least Americans, that helps helps them understand why this really matters. But that's not really a crypto conversation, right? It's more about the application of this distributed technology. And it's a very abstruse, right? It's a very kind of almost philosophical conversation, and I agree, that can be hard to, you know, bring to a level where ordinary Americans are like, well, this is, why does this matter to me? So I think that's one of the challenges, is actually, how do we bridge the the global conversation, which is not a unitary conversation, and then within the United States, make it applicable in a way that people really understand. So I, I think you put your finger on something.
6: Yeah, I think your your question's spot on. I would just take this, as, as Sujit has taken the step forward, I'd take a quick step back, and that is, it's it's, understandably, but it's amazingly fashionable to hate government. (laughs) Just amazingly fashionable, it gets people elected. And we're seeing that. It's also very fashionable to hate big tech. Not, uh, you know, it's understandable. Um, And I think what what Dante was talking about in terms of an industrial complex and stepping back and saying, what are the objectives that, that we are trying to achieve here with this technological advancement? And if we enable the conversation around values, Inherently in it, it forces uh, simplifying language and driving to use cases and creating enablement environments between uh, public and private sectors so that innovation can thrive in a way that we answer the questions, can I, as much as I answer the answer, you know, the question, should I. And I think that's what's needed.
1: I'm just going to jump in on this moderator's prerogative. (laughs) Uh, I, I do think that we've kind of missed the boat on this bigger conversation in general, and even taking one step back from the technology question to what is the, what is the system that we're trying to build? What's, what are the values behind that system? What are we trying to solve for in the next iteration of the global financial system and, US, and the US financial system? Um, what do, What does that look like? And based on that set of answers, then we can have the conversation about what technology applies. Uh, I'm gonna just play a little bit of the devil's advocate and say that we can probably solve de-risking in the traditional financial system if we want to. If we want to. We could create better risk management tools. We could create better ways um, to avoid de-risking on a on a grand scale, but we have to we have to encourage that innovation in the marketplace as well. Um, and maybe we need to do that. Maybe it's not one or the other. Uh, We need to make the existing system better, and we need to look forward and see, you know, where we go on a broader, um, you know, technology pathway. But I do do think that that's a a huge issue. So next question. One more.
0: Yeah, Hi, this is uh, Randy Mills. I'm with uh, FIS WorldPay. And I just want to say thank you all today at the panel discussions earlier, too. Um, So when it comes to digital identities, right, we're thinking about just um, today there's probably 20, 30 different versions of you online, whether it's your Facebook account, your bank account. Uh, can maybe the three of you talk about how could you know crypto, blockchain kind of help with that in the future? Well, whatever you do, do not refer to the me on the page two of Google search results. That's uh, that's where you go to lose something in the twenty first century. Um, I mean, look, the if ever there were, I think the the real killer use case that will advance um, all the issues that we were talking about for real people in real ways, it's digital identity. But we must of course understand that um, digital identity is merely uh, to import the nationally issued identity in a digital rendition. So so I think of it as a process for authentication, a blue check mark, much like we saw with social media after the election interference in 2016. I think technologically that is possible. It's ubiquitous, it's possible. However, there's still a policy gap, which is a big one, which is that a billion people around the world today have no nationally issued ID that would conform with the post 9 11 financial crime compliance framework. So that's a policy conundrum. When people talk about why hasn't crypto solved the financial inclusion issue, I'm like, well, why, hasn't, why haven't policymakers provided for free basic banking? That's a policy matter, to your point. Elaine, uh, the technology is often the easiest of things to resolve, it's then it, it, but it does show where status quo um, tends to fall short. And digital identity and the requirement of KYC as the basis for financial access, if it is a human right and there's a billion humans without one, we're in trouble. And that tech can't solve that if, if uh, the policymakers, the regulators, and others don't accept alternatives uh, to classically issued government IDs for financial access.
6: Yeah, I would just add, um, and it's a great question. Dante's points are are spot on. I would just add add to those, um, from the technology standpoint, um, we have the ability today to attach non-traditional forms of attestable attributes of your persona, even in the context where a national ID is not provided. We have the ability today to now add to that persona other attestable attributes like a wallet address, like a home address, like a device ID, a biometric that now taken in total constitute what can be an affirmative acceptance and verification of Randy Mills as an individual. And then we can write rules as to what that affirmation and verification does in terms of the access it provides to you. All of that technology exists today. That's the exciting part of digital identity and verifiable credentials that you then on top of that get to own that. And you get to then permission that to third party verifiers whether it's an educational institution to a- to access educational materials to healthcare providers in another highly sensitive sector to financial services so the ability to from a provenance perspective with levels of assurance to verify and validate you even in an environment where a national id is not provided to you is phenomenally accessible today and that's what excites me about digital identity
1: Okay, I guess we'll we'll cap it there uh, because we have food and uh, uh, libations waiting us. Uh, uh, Let me just uh, end with a quick uh, thought, which is this conversation actually took me back to um, the post 9-11 world when uh, we were thinking about uh, identity, Mm. digital identity, identity management in the context of biometrics, and that was essentially the same conversation. Uh, how do we protect identity in this uh, new national security environment? What are the rules of the road? W- how do we get to a user-centric approach around biometrics? Not sure we really got there, um, but maybe now we we will. So, uh, I want to thank everyone uh, for being with us today, and look forward to further conversation. Thank you. Thanks to our panelists.